Welcome to Executive Leaders Radio. In this hour, you'll hear directly from our region's finest business leaders. Through each of the interviews, these high-achieving leaders become relatable role models who share how they were able to build their enterprise, their personal secrets of success, about leadership styles and opportunities that lie ahead. Prepare to be inspired and entertained and to hear wisdom unheard elsewhere. Executive Leaders Radio. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio, broadcast from Hertzbach and Company in Arlington, Virginia. This is your host, Herb Cohen, with my co-hosts, Brett Carr from Hertzbach. And Gal, how do you pronounce your first name and last name, please? Gal Bornstein. And what's the name of the company? The Bornstein Group. Excellent. We have our guests today include Laura Lott, President and CEO of American Alliance of Museums, followed by Tim Springer, Co-Founder and CEO of Level Access, Nate Andorsky, CEO of Creative Science, and Larry Ebner, who is founder and CEO of Capital Appellate Advocacy. Let's get to know our first guest, Laura Lott, President and CEO of American Alliance of Museums. Laura, what is the American Alliance of Museums? We are a community of 35,000 museums and museum professionals of all different types and sizes, from art museums to zoos, and from the national museums to the tiniest gem uh, museums that are found in every community across the country. Wow. And when was this organization started? We were founded in 1906. And how long have you been the head of this organization, the Uh, president and CEO? For three years. For three years. And what's your your job uh, as the CEO nowadays? So uh, AAM is the chief advocate for the museum field, um, as well as the purveyor of uh, national standards and best practices for museum excellence. So I lead that work on behalf of the entire field. So isn't part of your job to make sure that you're engaging to your audiences, your audience is engaged with different constituents? Oh, one of the biggest challenges that museums face is to continued relevancy and, and engaging uh, people in new and interesting ways to uh, take advantage of the education that, that museums offer. Mm-hmm. Brad, do you want to find out about Laura's childhood? Well, uh, yeah, tell us what you were doing when you were you know, 8, to, eight 14. to 14 years old. Sure. So I, I was the uh, typically, I think, overachieving eldest child um, who was involved in just about everything. I joined Girl Scouts uh, at the various early point I could when I was about six or seven years old. Yeah. Um, how, uh, how, how far did you go in the Girl Scouts? Uh, I went all the way through the senior level and earned my gold award. Oh, so that's like Eagle Scouts for Boy Scouts. It is. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also got involved with student government, if I remember correctly? Yeah, I was involved in student government both in high school and in college. Why did you bother getting involved with student government? I saw an opportunity to uh, play a leadership role in making each of those places better. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, I think I was driven by um, uh, one of the tenets of of Girl Scouts is actually to leave a place better than you found it. I think that has been a driving force throughout my um, education. What what, what do you you mean? What are you talking about? What do you you mean? Well, even to to this day, the reason that I have uh, spent most of my career in the nonprofit world is because I uh, have found uh, it fulfilling to be part of organizations that are are making the world a better place. I think that uh, museums make the world a better place, and the American Alliance of Museums helps to make museums better. Mm-hmm. Cal? Laura, I'm very interested in the uh, path that you took as a child to leadership. It sounds like every position that you had almost led to a leadership position. Um, why are you not a follower? Why are you a leader? Uh, you know, I, I, my my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, the the uh, encouragement I got from home was always that I could do anything, and so I think it just followed uh, the opportunities to do be the first, uh, be the best, uh, and go to the top. Would you say it con- connects to being a first child? Uh, very well might be. It was mm-hmm. Started it's at birth. So what did your parents do? Uh, so dad was uh, owned an auto body repair shop, and mom was a nurse. Which, uh, which do you think you were more like? Uh, definitely more like my dad. Why would you say that? Uh, I think we're both uh, s- stubborn, uh, risk-taking, and hardworking. <laughs> how, how, do you, how would this risk-taking uh, show up? How else did this risk-taking show up? Well, one of the things uh, that I did early in, in life was a teacher in high school uh, gave me an opportunity to or suggested I apply for a, um, uh exchange student ship in Tokyo, Japan. So I, at the age of 15, um, applied and up and moved to Tokyo. Uh, where, where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, Hudson Valley, New York. Was it common town. for your friends to do a foreign ex- student exchange program? I was the first one in my uh, school system to do this. You were the first one in your school system to do this. And I assume that you knew Japanese when you went to Tokyo? I didn't know a word. Wait a second. What did <laughs> 
Uh, what did your parents think of this idea? Uh, they knew that I was driven to do everything that I could to be the first person in our family to go to college. And so they were, they set aside all of the personal feelings about letting their daughter go uh, around the world to, uh, to, to let me pursue that goal. I sense a lot of risk in the decisions that you're making. How does that translate into being a CEO or a successful CEO today, especially in a nonprofit environment? Yeah. Well, still to this day, I, I think that uh, every day we have to um, make decisions based upon less information than we would like to have, um, but may take risks to keep our organizations moving forward. But being risk averse in a nonprofit environment, how do you inspire uh, your board and the people around you? What do you use? What's the magic trick? Uh, well, the I, I'm lucky to have found a place where I think that the, our our board and and uh, is not risk adverse, and so we make a strong case, and we um, have uh, have uh, out valves to <laughs> to change course when we need to, and just making those tough decisions, I think, uh, is something that people respect. So it comes and, back um, to the childhood where you took risk that were calculated, or just mitigated. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that at 15 I realized the risk of leaving and, and going to Tokyo for um, for, for a year, but uh, certainly uh, exp- you know, learned a lot there and, and learned uh, inherently the value of making that right, kind of You were risk. there for a year? It wasn't just a week or two? It was a year. Uh-huh. What, what did you learn in student government that has anything to do with running a 35,000 person constituency organization nowadays yeah I think uh, it's it's still about risk-taking and tough tough decisions um, there's a thrill that I think I get from um, from leading a group of people and and setting a course and uh, and again making making change and making it for the better mm-hmm. Brett, what else are you thinking it sounds like risk fuels you yeah tell us about the pilot stuff <laughs> Um, so about uh, 15 years ago, I uh, went out and got my pilots, my private pilot's license. Why? I I I was uh, I was interested in doing it. I was. I, what I did your it husband do for a living? Be, my husband is in the aviation industry. So you decided you want to get your pilot's license. Did you ask your husband's permission? No. Oh, so what happened? Tell us about this. <laughs> so I, uh, I I was always around people who flew airplanes either for a living or for fun. Yeah. Uh, kind of wanted to be part of that club and, yeah. and went out to the flight school and, and signed up. And I was uh, addicted from my first takeoff. When did your husband find out you did this? Oh, uh, he knew pretty quickly, but he knew that he had no power to stop it, even so if he wanted to. did you ever to. take him up flying? Oh, yeah. He goes up all the did time. Did he behave himself? I mean, he, he enjoyed himself? He thinks he's the pilot sometimes. Oh, but you know what you're <laughs> so, so if we were doing a good interview what else what else should we be learning about you that we don't know right now um well i think one of the things that uh is is driving me throughout all of the things that i've done is the value of uh experiences and uh you know whether it's earning badges as a girl scout or having an experience um in situ in place like tokyo and isn't isn't that what these museums are all about that's exactly what museums are all about and so i see it both in my own life and in the life of my now six-year-old who has been to more museums than most grown-ups uh the the learning that she gets from those experiences um is invaluable so what you felt what you felt you needed is what you're trying to provide others that's right Hmm. so do you ever get a chance to visit any of these museums uh, I have been to over 600 museums since taking the helmet. Oh my helmet gosh! AM. And why do you do this? Because you have to. Uh, it's a part of the job to make sure that our members know that we are there. Um, do you and enjoy? Do you them. enjoy going to the museums? I love them. There what, are what gems you, all over the country that I never knew existed before. Like, what, what do you enjoy about museums? What are you talking about? They, uh, you know, each museum has uh, not only it's a unique collection with unique objects, but the stories that they're able to tell to really bring those objects to life are um, so thrilling when you take the time to to pay attention to them. And you t- you're taking your six-year-old daughter to different museums. Yes. Why do you do that? Uh, she loves it. Uh, I'm fortunate to work in a field where I can bring my daughter with me. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that... Um, How do you think this affected her? Uh, she has had uh, more exposure to more things than um, than I think I did in Wh- most of my. How's that affected her? The exposure. She's she's she makes connections to things. What are so you talking about? She has seen a lot of um, a lot of places and a lot of learned a lot of specific facts and and somehow the synapses in the brain uh, connect in a in a brighter way when you have that kind of exposure than when you're limited to you know one place one experience. How do you think that's going to affect her? 
Uh, I think that she uh, is going to go far. She might be the, uh, the president of the United States. So you're telling me one of the benefits of uh, parents taking their kids to museums is the exposure. Absolutely. It's, it's, there, it's not um, available through any other means. So just like travel broadens, those museums broaden, but you don't have to go overseas. That's absolutely right. You can visit the entire world by going down the street to uh, a number of the Smithsonian museums. Do you really believe that? I do. Give me that again a different way. What do you mean? Uh, you can you can visit uh, anywhere in the world by going to uh, any number of museums down the street in the Smithsonian um, by hearing the and experiencing the, the stories and the objects and the um, artwork from around the World. What's the website address of this organization known as the American Alliance of Museums? It's uh, aam-us.org. Let me have that again. aam-us.org. We've been speaking with Laura Lott, who's the president and CEO of the American Alliance of Museums. Here on Executive Leaders Radio, don't forget to visit our website. It's executiveleadersradio.com. Learn more about our executive leaders. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. And your name and organization is? Nancy West, Extari mm-hmm. Federal Services Group. And what do you guys do? We're a management consulting firm that handles business and workforce diversity programs. Oh, interesting. Where are you from originally? Newcastle, Pennsylvania. What was it like growing up, growing up in Newcastle, Pennsylvania? Boring and racist. Uh-oh. And uh, how would you know that? What, what are you talking about there? There were no job opportunities, and the doors were always slammed in my face. What did mom and dad do for a living? Uh, I never knew my father. My mother was a housekeeper. And how many brothers and sisters do you have? One brother. And what do you mean the opportunities you weren't exposed to or they were slammed in your face? What are you talking about there? Well, for example, my grandmother was a college graduate but could never get a job. And as I came along, I could never get any meaningful job, though I was smart. Okay, what's that have to do with what you're doing nowadays? What it has to do with is making sure that people have opportunity and oftentimes we find that the bias isn't intentional and just opening people's eyes to uh, economic opportunity and benefiting the whole population as a whole so what you were what you needed back then is what you're trying to provide for others you're trying to open the door for them exactly you're like the big door opener for everybody and you do who are your clients Airports, transit agencies, redevelopment authorities, private businesses, multinational companies. I work all over the place. So you're helping, it sounds like larger organizations really understand the benefit of diversity? Yes. Uh huh. It really turns you on doing this, doesn't it? It does. What's the website address of this organization? Services.com. How do you spell that? How do you spell that? E X S T A R E, federalservices.com. And your name again is? Nancy West. And you're the founder, owner, and managing director of Extari Federal Services Group? Yes. And this has been your business spotlight. And your name and organization is? Uh, my name is Mark Edward, and I'm with Hertzbeck. And what is Hertzbeck? We're a CPA and consulting firm. And what's your role in the firm? I'm one of the partners. I oversee our marketing group. I work with nonprofit organizations. And uh, what do you like about your job? I love the people, the people that I work with at Hertzbeck and the clients that I come in contact with. Huh. And I hear an accent. Where are you from originally? I'm from London, England. London, England. How young were you when you came to the United States? Uh, I was 36. And why did you come to the United States? My wife told me to. So your wife came to the United States, and um, this is a number of years ago. What, what do you like? What, 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 what do you enjoy about? What's the best part of your day? What do you enjoy doing? Best part of my day is is connecting with people, um, uh-huh. talking with them often, meeting with them, doing mm-hmm. what we're doing right now. You mentioned to me that you felt grateful. Why do you feel grateful? I feel privileged. I, I came to the United States at, at 36 years old. I was a, a chartered accountant. I, I had many doors open for me relatively easily once I got to know people. And I feel very guilty about it. Um, and I've spent the rest of my career, the last 20 years, giving back. That's driven me towards nonprofit organizations, both as a service provider and as a vo- volunteer, a board member. Um, it's, it's a very important part of my life. What's a very important part of your life? Giving back, uh, setting the skills straight. Uh-huh. Why, why do you do that? Because I feel privileged. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been given many advantages mm-hmm. that maybe mm-hmm. I didn't deserve that 
It sounds to me like you're very grateful. What's what's your name again, and what's the name of the organization? Mark Edward Hertzback. And what's the website address for Hertzback? It's Hertzback.com. Let me have the spelling of that. H e r z b a c h dot com. We've been speaking with Mark Edward, partner of Hertzback, here on Executive Leaders Radio. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Tim Springer, co-founder and CEO of Level Access. Tim, what is Level Access? What are you guys doing? Yeah, so we make it so blind people can use your website and apps. And uh, the reason that's a good business is uh, it allows you to conform with laws like the ADA. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me websites need to comply with ADA laws? Uh, Big question at the time. But yeah, the same way when you build a building, you make sure it conforms. Uh, When you build a website these days, you do the same thing. Huh, interesting. How large or how small is this organization? Uh, so we've got about 170 people uh, in the organization right now. Uh-huh. How'd, you, how'd you get a job with this company? Yeah, so uh, best way to get a job is start the company. So I started it back in 1999. How, uh, young, how young were you when you started this business? Uh, I was 19, actually, when I started it. Uh, did you go to college? Yeah, so uh, I was at school. I uh, dropped out of school to start it. This was back in 1999 when it was the dot-com era. So that sounded like a great idea at the time. So you dropped out of college to start this business. And it's now 170 people. Okay, Brett, what do you got? Earlier, you mentioned that you were you moved from Cleveland to Miami when you were about eight years old. Yeah, yeah. So how did that affect you? Yeah, so Cleveland's a pretty homogenous environment, and so we went from a world where you know everybody kind of looked the same, talked the same, and acted the same to the exact opposite end, where it was a heterogeneous environment. Everybody was different, and uh, really gave me a strong, I guess, appreciation for diversity. Uh, and that everybody's different, and that's there's beautiful and unique things about everybody. What made you start the company? So we started it for a combination of two reasons, but really the, the first one is just it sounded interesting to do. Um, I had always wanted to start a company from the time I was three, and I had a chance to do that, uh, and in that time frame, it was a good time to start a, well, a well, technology company. What do you company. mean you always wanted to start a company since you were three? What was going on in your early childhood? So I, I don't know if entrepreneurs are made or born. In my case, I was born. Uh, it just, that gene was on from a very early age. But what, what, what kind of vision or what kind of, how do you know that? How do you know that from three on, were you like dreaming of business ideas or what was going on there? So some of that, uh, I think ultimately I just, I really had a strong desire to build and that was just an, a deep and innate how, sense. How did that show up in eight to 14 years old, that desire to build? What are you talking about? Yeah, so I spent a lot of time uh, working on computers in that era, and my older brother uh, was into computers, and so I kind of followed that, and you do a lot of building. Uh-huh. Didn't you tell us you were brought up in a religious context? Yeah, so religion was a pretty strong part of the rhythms of the life uh, that I grew up in, and as part of that, I think I also received a sense of uh, fate and sort of inheriting your destiny. Uh, and I kind of rebelled against that pretty strongly. I felt like I was in control of my life, and what's the biggest thing you can do there? Start a company. So I guess uh, were your parents in love with the idea of you dropping out of college? Uh, They were surprisingly supportive. Um, They were definitely not in love with the idea and made their displeasure known, Um, but they also knew that there was no talking me out of it. So you were uh, 19 when you started this business. It's now 170 people. And your older brother, you mentioned earlier, had exposed you to computers. Um, what, what did mom and dad do for a living? So mom, high school English teacher. Uh, dad was a real estate developer uh, early in his career and then had a second career as uh, what could best be called a missionary, uh, working in the religious area. Uh-huh. Uh, missionary. How does that connect to what you do today? So I think one of the things I inherited from my dad, was taught by my dad, was like a sense of social justice. Uh, and that there are moral and ethical truths and things we should do that are correct in our lives. Mm-hmm. And one of the benefits I have is my company gives me the chance to do that. So it sounds like unlike uh, maybe most capitalists, you actually attach a social good to what you do? I'd like to think so. Um, I think this concept that you, you, can, you have to be a capitalist or um, someone that does good is a false dichotomy. I think you can, you can do well financially and you can do well in society. And how does that relate to your childhood? there is a relationship. Uh, I I think the connection really comes back to just core moral and ethical underpinning and um, the sense that there is right and there is wrong. And if you're going to do something that's good for you financially, you might as well do something that's good for people as well. So faith was a startup and a grown-up for you. Uh, I'm sorry, say it one more time. Faith was a startup situation and a grown-up for you. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So this organization, how's this affected your your, uh, building this organization, the culture of the organization? 
So we're really focused on both operating our business in the best way we can and having a big impact. So we talk about two things. We talk about how do we do financially, but we also talk about how do we do societally? Have we actually made things accessible and usable for people with disabilities? And if we do that, we'll have a really profound impact on society. Huh. So what's the best part of your day? What do you enjoy about your day the most? So I, I'm an in-the-weeds uh, operating person. I like the mechanics of running a business. Uh, I always have, and I probably always will. Um, I have this idea that there's a platonic ideal of what we should be able to do as a business. Maybe mm -hmm. that comes from my upbringing as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to help get people to that end, to that position. Mm -hmm. Brad, you know something? So uh, tell us about folks that were very influential in your early life. So two big themes that came out uh, kind of from my early life, especially as it relates to business leadership and entrepreneurship, um, you know, my two grandfathers randomly were both entrepreneurs. One was a real estate developer. Uh, that was my dad's father. And then my mom's father was a farmer who started a uh, growth cooperative. So you got two different industries, and, and did you ever talk to them about business and stuff like that? Yeah, very much so. And, you know, going back, I was really interested in this stuff from a young age, and so I think they cultivated that interest. Uh, and it, it led to cool places and cool conversations. What, what, give me an example of what you mean. What are you talking about? Well, so like I had a bank account when I was like three years old, which is crazy pants. Like nobody does that. Uh, and I would talk to my grandfather about that and he would say, well, let's talk about interest and let's talk about loans. And that, that would be a normal thing to talk about. So you had an interest at a young age. Uh, who opened up the bank account for you? Was that one of your grandfathers, or your parents, or who, who did that? So literally, I opened up the bank account for myself. My uh, my mother took me into uh, Key Bank, which is a Cleveland bank, and uh, I think I deposited five dollars and you know six cents or something like that. And you still remember that? Yeah, yeah, formative experience. Uh huh. And and how did that formative experience affect you? How's that affecting you nowadays? I think it's that in business scores are kept with dollars and cents and so respecting that and understanding that if you want to have the impact on society you got to run a really good business and that means you got to understand dollars and cents all right so so i understand you've built a substantial business i'm wondering how, how do you give back to society so I think from a pure mission perspective, what we really focus on is how many uh, people with disabilities can engage in um, sort of conversations in society and one and then employment opportunities. And so if we do our job well, we have drastically expanded the opportunity for people with disabilities to participate in a digital society. Do you ever hear stories about how you've helped people? Um, we have a bunch. A lot of them come from the level of our customers. Uh, and so across a lot of industries, it really comes down to doing what seem like mundane things but are profound for people with disabilities. Uh, being able to go online and file your taxes. That sounds like something we should all be able to do. Um, that can be very difficult without accessibility. So you're helping folks. Uh, Brett? No, I, I have to rewind a little bit. You mentioned the checking account with $5.06. I, I have to know, what did you use the bank account for? Oh, I brought something wondrously, like, ridiculous. You know, like, I bought, like, a toy boat or something like that at some point. Um, but, yeah, it, it kind of stored up there. The story would be better if I still had the checking account to this day. But, uh, yeah, no, we stored it up over a long period of time. Uh-huh. And uh, let me let, – what's the website address of this organization known as uh, Level Access? Levelaccess.com. Levelaccess.com. And uh, how high is up? Where, where, where's the end result of this? What do you see doing with the company? So I think we want to positively impact the lives of everybody with disabilities on a global level. It's about a billion people, uh, and that'll keep mm -hmm. my work cut out for me for a while. Uh -huh. Let me have the website address one more time. Levelaccess.com. We've been speaking with Tim Springer, co-founder and CEO of Level Access here on Executive Leaders Radio. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. One help building your business with help from this show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues... Because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, 
email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. And your name is? Jeff Lawson. And Jeff, what organization are you with? I'm with Lakota Hotels and Resorts. And wh- what do you guys do? What kind of stuff are you doing that's special? Well, we manage uh, conference centers and hotels, and we're currently managing the National Conference Center in Leesburg, Virginia. National Conference Center. How large or how small is this organization? Um, the conference center itself is 900 rooms in size, 350,000 square feet of meeting space, dining facilities for 850, uh, exercise facility all set on 61 acres of land. Wow, this is a large organization, isn't it? It is, very large. Uh-huh. And what's your role in the organization? I'm the general manager, and I have oversight of the uh, property and all the hospitality services that occur. Well, w- what's the general manager supposed to do with this large facility? Make sure I have a, make sure eight executive committee members and a, and a full uh, staff of 210 do their daily jobs. So how many folks do you have running through your halls on a weekly basis or daily basis or annual basis? What's that look like? Well, on a weekly basis, on a full house, we'll have uh, 900 per night, um, seven nights, uh, 6,300, which translates to about 20,000 meals a week. Wow. And uh, your job, are you working nine to five or do you end up having to work evenings and early mornings and weekends and stuff like that? No, I'd say I'm always on duty. Uh-huh. Do you, wh- what do you enjoy about your job? Meeting people, working with some of the finest hospitality people in Virginia, which is my team, and meeting our clients because they're wonderful. So you're helping your clients plan their events? Well, we help plan. Uh, they are there for some form of education that goes on at one end of our business. And at the other end of our business, they're there for social catering events, uh, weddings and such. So you're you're, well you're running a 24 by 7 facility, aren't you? We are. Uh-huh. What's the website address of this organization? Conferencecenter.com. Let me have that again. Conferencecenter.com. And your name again is? Jeff Lawson. And the name of the organization? Lakota Hotels and Resorts. And this has been your business spotlight. And your name is? Chuck Ockeltree. And Chuck, what organization are you with? The National Conference Center and West Belmont Place Event Center. Uh-huh. And what makes this organization special? The National Conference Center was built um, to be the nation's premier uh, meeting and event venue. Um, it's not a traditional hotel. Mm-hmm. So even though we have 900 guest rooms and all the services and amenities of a traditional hotel, mm-hmm. because of our size, mm-hmm. we're able to uh, deliver um, an environment that is very conducive to uh, learning, development. And who are your clients? Our clients are uh, many of the, the corporate 100, corporate 500, as well as uh, because of our location in Leesburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. we do a lot of business with Washington, D.C. Uh, government agencies. Mm-hmm. And what do you like about your job? What I like about uh, is we've had the opportunity to bring new leadership to the National Conference Center, blend with the tremendous service team that's built a reputation over the years uh, for great service. And uh, we've had a lot of fun um, helping our clients take advantage of the 65-acre campus. How about you personally? What, what do you enjoy about your job? I enjoy that, that we've uh, had a very, very, very successful turnaround in mm-hmm. uh, the two and a half years, mm-hmm. uh, taking the National Conference Center uh, from where it was in mm-hmm. 2014 with Excellent. the new, uh, new ownership. We've literally doubled the revenue. And w- so. what's, your, what's your role in the organization again? Uh, my role is Chief Marketing Officer. And what's that mean? It, good question. It means that uh, uh, we're involved with branding, mm-hmm. uh, everything to do with the sales, the marketing, the promotion, and uh, the business development. So you're actually going Conference out there and you're actually involved with helping bring in the clients. Exactly, yes. And sir. I guess the way you're doing that is you're actually talking to a lot of the clients, making sure that you know your services are valuable. We talk to a lot of the clients and we do a lot of uh, events what's as well. What's the website address of the organization? www.conferencecenter.com. Let me have that one more time www.conferencecenter.com. This has been your business spotlight. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Nate Andorski, who is the CEO of Creative Science. Nate, what is Creative Science? What are you guys doing? We help nonprofits raise more money by building websites and mobile apps. Give me that idea again. Give me that one more time. So what we do is we engage with nonprofits to help them reach a wider audience and raise more money through technology. Hmm, interesting. And uh, where are you from originally? I grew up in Columbia, Maryland. And how many brothers and sisters? I'm in the middle of three. In the middle of three. What was it like growing up in the middle of three in Columbia, Maryland? Uh, I had a great childhood. It was definitely uh, competitive being the middle of three siblings. Um, uh-huh. Did what I needed to stand out. Uh, what do you mean you did whatever you needed to do to stand out? What are you talking about there? Well, they always say that the middle child syndrome, sometimes the middle child is forgotten. So I think that I always was trying to do something to uh, be noticed, uh, stand out from my siblings. Be noticed. Isn't that what you do for your clients? Exactly. Uh, We see opportunity where others don't. 
What are you talking about? Uh, we are able to engage our clients and open their eyes to untapped potential in regards to engaging with supporters and places where they can raise more money. How young were you when you began uh, helping uh, market stuff? Uh, I was in I was in I was in high school. Yeah, what happened? I was working as a busboy, making next to no money, and I was supposed to be saving some money for college. And I decided, after selling a few items for myself on eBay. I needed some inventory and I started a company called Easy Selling where I would sell items for other people on eBay and then take a commission. So you were helping identify things that you could sell and figuring out how to sell them. Well, that sounds like you're a marketing guy. Yeah, exactly. And you're applying that to the world of nonprofits, huh? Exactly. Brett? Is that, what did your mom and dad do for a living? My dad's a doctor and my mom's a nurse. So how do you think that influenced you? Most of my family is in the professional field, whether the medical field or uh, a number of them are lawyers, and I never wanted to go down that route, so I'm actually one of the only entrepreneurs in my family. How does that impact what you do today? Uh, I think it gives me a broader perspective, but it also uh, is a drive to, to be different uh, off the unbeaten path. Do you see the connection between uh, the time that you were the middle child to today? I definitely do. I definitely do, and I think that's a driving factor of what I do is 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 being different. What other things do you think that in your life is, have you done to strive to be different? I think starting the company in high school definitely was one of them. I also think that uh, throughout my life I've started a number of different initiatives and organizations, and that's a big driver in, in learning new things that others don't. Earlier, you mentioned that your grandfather was a big influence in your life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so my, my grandfather was uh, from Vienna, Austria, <clears throat> and he was actually a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he came over to the U.S. with uh, less than $5 in his pocket and just a high school education. And he managed to work his way up uh, as a VP of Clairol, and he's named as the inventor or co-inventor on a number of patents. One of them is the tweezers, actually. Wow. This is, this is who? Uh, my grandfather. How do you think that influenced you? Uh, he passed away when I was in middle school, so I didn't really get a chance to get to know him as an adult, but he wrote memoirs before he passed, and I read those memoirs actually in college, and it's really interesting to see a lot of the correlations between the types of things that I naturally do that he did as a child and growing up. Like what? There's a story actually in the memoirs of his, his father, who was also an entrepreneur, um, and I didn't come across this until I was out of college, and he actually was going through the classifieds, buying old tractors, cleaning them up, and then reselling them for a profit. And funny enough, even before I knew this, I was doing the same thing in college, buying cell phones on Craigslist and then selling them on eBay. So it's in the blood, this buying and selling and marketing stuff, huh? Exactly. It sounds uh -huh. like thinking out of the box as well. Uh, thinking out of the box, I think the hustle, the perseverance of just finding opportunities uh, wherever they are. It sounds like you have a lot of creativity pent up. I do. How and do you I think it comes out. I express it in a number of different ways. One is through my company, uh, through creating technology. I also am an avid piano player. I've done stand up comedy, I've done improv. Huh. How does it all relate to being the CEO today of a successful company? I think it relates in a number of ways. One of them is the stand-up comedy actually has been very beneficial when it comes to pitching and selling and public speaking, but also learning how to relate to somebody. Uh, I guess if you can make somebody laugh, you can almost make them do anything. So that's been a really valuable lesson for me. And then with piano, um, there's actually studies in neuroscience about creativity and musicians and how it connects the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere. You see a connection between comedy and making people do things in marketing, huh? Mm -hmm. What are you talking about? I think being able to understand how people operate, uh, how people engage with other human beings and what makes them tick. Uh, lends itself really well to to marketing. Uh huh. And uh, what do you, what do you do to relax? Uh, I swim and I play piano. You play piano. And uh, what kind of piano do you like to play? What kind of music do you like to play? Um, I d I take lessons currently with a jazz pianist, so it's a lot of improvisation, uh, covers of pop songs, things of those nature. Um, but I thought the CEO was the boss. But it sounds like you like getting input, like you're getting tutored with the piano. Yes, I think one of the best qualities as a leader or a CEO is uh, being able to hire people that are smarter than you and get out of the way. <clears throat> G give me that again. Let me make sure I understand that. Um, learning, learning what your weaknesses are and being able to hire people that are smarter than you and getting out of the way. 
But I thought the key was, you know, you had to go through brick walls if you were the CEO. So it's like, wait a minute, when do you go through brick walls and when do you stop? And how do you know all that stuff? Uh, you learn by doing, and that's why I started at a very early age. Uh-huh. So who, do you have any mentors? Um, mostly just my, my grandfather, who's, who's since passed. Um, I do belong to an entrepreneurship group. Uh, a number of individuals that helped me along my way, though, too. Uh huh. If your grandfather was here nowadays, how do you think he'd uh, feel about what you've done? I think he would. Well, I know he would be very proud. Um, uh, Why? Of what I've accomplished. Why would that be? Because, I mean, he had a much harder childhood than I have ever had, and, and knowing that all that he worked for it and went through wasn't in vain. What do you mean by that? That I've I've carried on the passion that he had in life for creating an, an innovation. Mm -hmm. Do you ever see yourself retiring? I don't think so fully. I've noticed that actually as an entrepreneur and a CEO of a company that um, it's really not about the money. It's more about the stimulation of challenging myself. And I think if I ever fully retired, I would get pretty bored pretty quickly. Did your grandfather ever fully retire? No. He actually, even after he officially retired, uh, he was still always working um, on side projects or creating or inventing. So he never, he never put his mind to rest. But I thought the American dream was, you know, you you get you get sixty two, you hit sixty two or sixty five, and you go to Florida and you you know go out to dinner every night or something like that. I think it is for people that don't love what they do. What what, what are you talking about? I thought you know what time what time do you start playing with emails in the morning? Uh, as soon as I get up. Like what time is that? Uh, six o'clock. What time do you stop doing them at night? I try to cut off around seven or eight. Um, What's the truth? Nine. <laughs> Thank you. And the good thing is you get off weekends, don't you? Sometimes. No. So uh, why would you go ahead and work 12, 14 hour days, six or seven days a week? Because uh, that's what drives me. And it's not the work. It's, it's this passion and drive to just create something um to create you kept on using that word create whether it's piano and it's business you, you see you find business a creative passion uh, i i do uh-huh is it servicing the clients building the organization which part of business are you talking about that's creative that you enjoy i think it's being able to create something that previously didn't exist and then the enjoyment that you get from watching other people use that creation to better themselves and their organization it's it's incredibly satisfying. That sounds like inventing, though. Yes. It sounds like also like social impact based on the mission of the company. Yes. Wait a minute. I'm trying to figure. So, so on one hand, you're seeing creativity, creating something from nothing, you know, innovating, and also social impact. But I thought, you know, making money was making money. You're seeing a connection there. I used to think making money was making money, but I quickly realized once I started making some money and I wasn't as satisfied as I thought I was, I started to realize that my big driver is, is not money. I mean, I would obviously like to be well off, but it's indeed actually being able to invent things that other organizations and people can use. All right, so, so you weren't, wait a minute, I don't understand this. So you were making money and you weren't satisfied. G give me that again. I'm not sure I understand. So I always thought the goal was to make a lot of money and I started making money and I got to the point of the income that I wanted to be at and I realized that um, I still wasn't satisfied and this goal I had been chasing was a never-ending cycle. And really what truly dr drove me was this passion for inventing. Inventing. So you think you're going to keep yourself busy the rest of your life inventing one way or another? Maybe the balance shifts, maybe you'll hang out with a little more vacation or whatever, but you really enjoy the art of creating, huh? I love it. Uh-huh. Um, what's the best part of your day? The mornings. Why? It's quiet. Um, no one's pinging me yet. Uh, I have some time to relax and enjoy the type of things that I want to do from a creative standpoint, whether it's code or play piano or read. Um, the world isn't up yet. I have that time to myself. What's the website address of this organization known as Creative Science? CreativeScience.co. Let me have them one more time. It's CreativeScience.co. We've been speaking with Nate Andorsky, CEO of Creative Science here on Executive Leaders Radio. We'll be back in a moment right after this break.
And your name is? Ray Briscuso. And Ray, what organization are you with? Life Sciences Conference Group. And what is Life Sciences Conference Group? What do you folks do? We produce annual conferences and events for medical technology, life science, pharmaceutical companies. Uh-huh. So if I go to an event, you're the folks that are working behind the scenes to make it happen? That's correct. We're the ones that make sure the food's on the table, the seats are there, soundstage and lights are there, your registration process works. And, and what kind of events are these? Are these just in the life science industry? Strictly in the life science industry. Why, why do you focus on the life science industry? Uh, we found that the best way to produce a high-quality event is to really know your customer. So we don't believe in numbers. It's names. We get to know each company. We find out what their actual mission and goals are, and we find the best way to deliver the value to them. And are you doing this nationally or regionally? We do it nationally. We're continuing to look for international opportunities, but it's primarily here in North America. And how old is this company? Uh, the company has just finished its 10th year. And how long have you been with the company? I founded the company 10 years ago. What gave you the idea to start this company? I used to work for a big corporation, and I produced the annual event for us. And when I decided to leave, they said, thank you for giving us $150 million worth of a business, and we'll see you later. And mm -hmm. next time I decided I would keep some ownership and do it myself. Ah, so you've been, building, you've been building this ever since. What do you like about your job? I like how different it is because we mix policy, we mix business. I might be putting one CEO together with a politician. I might be putting another CEO together with an investor. Mm -hmm. And I might be putting the next person together with their next employee. How interesting. Well, what's the website address for this organization? MedTechConference.org. Let me have that one more time. MedTechConference.org. And the name of the organization, again, is? Well, Life Sciences Conference Group. Life Sciences Conference Group. And your name is? Ray Briscuso. Ray Briscuso. We've been talking to Ray Briscuso, CEO and managing partner of Life Sciences Conference Group here on Executive Leaders Radio. This has been your business spotlight. I'm Tina Leone. I'm the CEO of the Boston Business Improvement District. And what is the Boston Business Improvement District? We work to attract, support, and connect the most compelling, creative, and ambitious minds in our region. Boston is known as an epicenter for research and discovery. Uh, some of the greatest things that are invented, such as the MRI, the barcode, the internet, the first satellite, all were either conceived, funded, or developed by organizations here in Boston. How, how old is this organization? We're just, just shy of six years old. How long have you been there? How long have you been uh, almost six years as well. Did you found this organization? Yes, I, I am the founding CEO. Why did you do that? Well, they, they, the organization actually came about uh, by the commercial property owners in why, Boston. Why, why, why does it turn you on? Why does your gig turn you on? <laughs> people. I mean, we the, the, the ability to connect people, and then who knows the next great idea is going to result from that. We have incredible minds in the Washington, D.C. area, and Boston is, as I said, the epicenter for the smartest people in this area. So your job, you're like the master connector. I feel like the mayor of, of Boston, the mayor of innovation, because that's uh -huh. what's happening. So your idea, your, your thought is that in order to create more stuff, in order to launch more businesses, in order to cause more good, it's a matter of connecting exactly. the right people. Exactly. And you like being in the middle of all that uh, stuff. Oh, we love it. We love it. And simple things, just connecting people through events, through art, uh, through a happy hour. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to come out of that. Mm -hmm. That's what's exciting. So it's all about the people. And you're the uh, you're the founder of this organization. Is this a nine-to-five kind of job oh, for you? Oh, hell no. It's a lot longer uh -huh. than that, baby. So do you have to, you have to work the weekends and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, sure, sure. Let me have the website address of this sure, organization. It's bostonbid.com, and, and you can download the Boston Connect mobile app. Let me have, uh, let me have that website address one more bostonbid .com. time. bostonbid.com. It's B-A, give me the spelling on that. B-A-L-L-S-T-O-N-B-I-D.com. Excellent. Your name again is? Tina Leone. And the name of the organization? Is the Balsam Business Improvement District. And this has been your business spotlight back in a moment. Want help building your business with help from the show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money. All the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. Some of the CEOs who have appeared on our shows over the last 10 years may be willing to help you grow, assuming you've ser you're serious about your success, serious about your own success, because it all starts with the leader. If you're serious about creating your own successful business or truly committed to putting your nose to the grindstone and doing whatever it takes to make your business successful, 
We may be able to match you with successful CEOs who have created millions of jobs and earned millions of dollars to help you create your success. We've established unique relationships with a unique universe of over 7,000 CEOs who have created substantial wealth for their companies, their teams, and themselves. These women and men get the build in their blood and often continue to start and build businesses even after they've created substantial wealth for themselves because they love the challenge of building a business. Perhaps we can present you and your business to some of these CEOs to gain their interest in helping you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. To hopefully match you with some of the CEOs we've had on the show for the last 10 years. Mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Larry Ebner, who's founder and CEO of Capital Appellate Advocacy. Larry, what is Capital Appellate Advocacy? It's a law firm that represents companies when lawsuits go on appeal and that gives trade associations and other nonprofits a voice as a friend of the court in the U.S. Supreme Court and federal courts of appeals. Wow. Where, where were you from originally? Uh, from Bergen County, New Jersey, outside of New York City. And how many brothers and sisters? I have two younger brothers. And what was going on with you, 8 to 14? What were your interests? I think my early interests were astronomy, acting in theater, and politics. Mm-hmm. Gal? That's very interesting. Uh, what you do right now is uh, do a lot of uh, constructing and deconstructing. How do you think uh, your early childhood interests uh, relate to it? Well, I think maybe in retrospect, I realized that those early interests all helped me broaden my perspective on uh, the world, helped me appreciate uh, issues and how to analyze them. Astronomy helped you uh, broaden? Tell me about astronomy, how that helped broaden you. What are you talking about? Well, I wanted to be an expert on something, and uh, it helped me put the world in a broader perspective. Uh what, What did that do for a living? Uh, he was an embroidery manufacturer. Uh-huh. And did you ever go to work with your father? Uh, I, I never went to work with him. I, I may have visited his plant once in a while, but he would take me around to different local uh, political events. How young were you when you were going to these political events? Uh, probably from the time I was 12. So didn't you hate doing that? Didn't you hate doing that? No, I actually enjoyed it. I found it uh, interesting being exposed to uh, different people and the kinds of issues they were dealing with. So how do you think that uh, being exposure, going to these political events when you were 12 years old with your dad, how do you think that influenced you? Uh, It helped me uh, understand that there are a multitude of moving parts uh, in society and that uh, a lot of them had more than one side to them. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier about acting and politics. How do you think that shaped you today? Well, I, I, acting uh, helped give me some perspective on different people in different situations. Uh, I came to realize that a lot of politicians are actors, and that's why ultimately I became more interested in the issues that politicians address than politicians themselves. Give me that again. What do you mean by that? What are you talking about? I'm more interested in issues than politicians. The issues than politics. And how how does this issue stuff help you as an attorney? What are you talking about there? What's the connection? Well, as an appellate attorney, uh, almost everything I deal with are complicated legal issues and their policy implications. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. And uh, the companies that I represent, the trade associations and nonprofits that I represent uh, need help uh, analyzing issues, formulating positions, and advocating what those positions are to the judicial decision makers. And personally, I find the judicial branch of the government uh, a lot more satisfying than the uh, political branch. Why, 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 why is that? Because I think that judges, uh, at least appellate judges, uh, are dedicated to carefully analyzing issues and coming out with uh, the best possible result. I'm not so sure that the political branches are motivated solely by coming out with the best possible result. So it sounds like there's a science behind it that you've learned how to deconstruct. Well, uh, I guess you could call legal analysis a type of science. That's something that law schools try to teach uh, new lawyers. And uh, astronomy is kind of like reaching for the stars, I guess? 
Well, I never thought of it that way, but again, it's something that my father used to tell me, which is to broaden my perspective whenever and however uh, I, I could, and I think astronomy was a first effort at doing that, although I'm really not interested in that particular subject any longer. And the Supreme Court is kind of like the highest you can get? It's the highest that you can get in the United States, that's correct. So your, fa- your father's encouragement was for you to broaden your horizons. What was that encouragement again? Let me have that. It was to broaden my perspective on um, the nation, the world, issues. And you have gone ahead and stood in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, I have not uh, had an oral argument before the Supreme uh-huh. Court, but I have written uh, many, many uh, briefs uh, for the Supreme Court, which is the bulk of Supreme Court practice. And, and give me the connection between your father's encouragement and these briefs. Well, the briefs uh, address all kinds of difficult legal issues uh, in the areas that I focus on or what you might call civil justice. And uh, here in the D.C. area, they also focus on uh, products and services that are regulated or procured by the federal government. Mm-hmm. So the fact that your father encouraged you to have a broader perspective actually has allowed you when you're writing these briefs and when you're having, when you're having these discussions to understand all the different sides of the issue that allowed you to posture or position yourself better? That's right. And it also helps me do one thing that I really like doing, which is writing. Huh. How young were you when this writing ability was showing up? I think it probably started uh, when I was in junior high. I remember uh, one of my first jobs was writing press releases for local politicians. Wait, wait, wait. How, how young were you when this was going on? I think I was in high school. And one of your first jobs was doing what in high school? Writing uh, press releases uh, to send to newspapers. Wait a minute. Most of us worked at McDonald's or were a busboy. You were writing press releases for politicians? Yes. Uh-huh. What did you enjoy about that? I enjoyed uh, being able to uh, write something that was concise and to the point and hopefully persuasive. Huh, how about that? And and whose idea was it for you to get that job? Did your dad help you do that? Or did yes, you? yeah, I'm sure he did. And you really enjoyed that. It sounds like he really helped introduce you to uh, a I, big I, chunk I of who you I did enjoy are. that, and it um, mm-hmm. led to you know my uh, continued interest mm-hmm. in writing concisely and persuasively. What's the website address of this organization known as Capital Appellate Advocacy? CapitalAppellate.com. Let me have that one more time. Capital Appellate, that's with an A, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, Appellate.com. Excellent. We've been speaking with Larry Abner, founder and CEO of Capital Appellate Advocacy. We've also had the opportunity of speaking with Laura Lott, president and CEO, American Alliance of Museums, followed by Tim Springer, co-founder and CEO of Level Access, Nate Andorsky, CEO of Creative Science, and again, most recently, Larry Ebner, founder and CEO of Capital Appellate Advocacy. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, including Brett Carr from Hertzback. What's the, what's the website address for Hertzback? Uh, it's www.hertzback.com, H-E-R-T-Z-B-A-C-H. And uh, .com. And uh, Gal? It's uh, the Bornstein Group, which mm-hmm. is bornsteingroup.com. How do you spell that? B-O-R-E-N-S-D-E-I-N.com. All right. This is Herb Cohen. Thank you for joining us today. Do have a nice day. And don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Executive Leaders Radio, the region's premier radio show highlighting local executive leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the show here on 1500 AM. You can learn more about Executive Leaders Radio by visiting executiveleadersradio.com or tune in next time right here on 1500 AM. That's executiveleadersradio.com.